Sometimes as believers, we say things that are they're true, but they also become mundane to us because we've said them so often, like, God is up to something, or um, there's great hope for breakthrough, or, or God is good, or there's, there's, um, we're in a great season of transition. Believe that? Yeah. We have so many things we're accustomed to saying and believing, but sometimes we need to say them again with meaning because they're more true today than they ever were. God goes from glory to glory. He never declines. It may decline in my thinking. It may decline in, in my um, awareness. But it doesn't decline in God's purpose. He is always increasing. It says in Isaiah, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Of the increase. It never stops. His increase never stops. Since the moment God declared a thing, it was increasing. It was growing. His glory was shining more and more. The Bible says, for instance, all things are put under his feet. It doesn't say they were put under his chin. They're put under his feet. He's the head where the body, where the feet at. Right down at the bottom. I don't know who's the feet, but they're at the bottom. All things are put under his feet. He's made the points of the gospel so clear, but they're so overwhelmingly good, so unbelievably good, that it's easy for us to dilute them or to water them down because they're costly to believe. This morning, we want to talk about the blood covenant. Jesus was sent to the earth to redeem humanity. To die in our place. To be a sacrifice for us. To shed his blood for our redemption. There, there's a statement, I came across this statement in a book I read lots of books about the blood. But in this statement, it just gripped my attention when he said it, that it's so true. The whole plan of redemption rests upon the power of the blood of Jesus. The whole plan of redemption rests upon his blood. It's the primary statement I I chose for the sermon about the blood, but I'm not going to preach that sermon today. Um, I was going to preach about something else this morning and God brought me back to the blood. But that sermon about the blood is not really done yet. It's been going on, like she said, a while. But God is revealing so many things, so many aspects of the blood that I'm still working on, trying to absorb what they mean, what what they are. But I want want to share something about the background, the foundation of the blood and and so we're going to talk about the blood, but not really the full sermon. That's for next week or the week after, or two months from now, I don't know. When he'll get done telling me about it. But the foundational principle is found in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. And then in verse 14, it says, For the blood is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. There's something mysterious about um, the blood. You know, um, when Adam was made, it says God formed him from the dust of the earth. And um, he was there. And he was just laying there, kind of like a, a clay sculpture. Dusty but clay sculpture. And then it says God breathed into him. And he became a living soul. Well, the Bible says that the life is in the blood. So when God breathed into him, it was like he infused him with something. He infused him with blood. Something that produced life in him. The blood is a different a different organ than any other organ in your body. Most of your organs are solitary and um, located in one place. In other words, my eyes are just there. I don't have eyes in my knees. It's a good thing. My knees wouldn't take it. You know, they're just located in one place, but your blood is an organ that flows throughout all of your body and it touches every organ. In fact, your blood circulates entirely every 23 seconds. That's amazing. Another thing that's amazing about blood, this isn't part of the message, but blood carries oxygen and food when it goes on that 23-second journey. At the same time, it picks up garbage and takes it out. It's amazing. I got this dump truck, and it goes down to the store and picks up all my food, but it picks up all the garbage at the same time, and they never mingle. The body never throws away the food and feeds you the garbage. It always takes place just simultaneously in 23 seconds. Your whole blood circulation, your whole system circulates its blood. That's a side note. Forget that. Now in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 8, it says that we, let me read the verse, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch he is also the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. There it is. Nope, that isn't it. Hebrews 8, 6. Anyway, I read it. But to know exactly how the covenant that God, we have is better, we need to understand a little bit about how the old covenant worked. God established that covenant with Abraham. Here we go back to Abraham. Okay? God established that covenant with Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham that he would become the father of many nations. He promised him a great deal of land as an inheritance so that his people, his inheritance could live peacefully thereon. In Deuteronomy 28, a little bit later than Abraham, but you find more specifically the promises, the blessings of Abraham spelled out. The first, I don't know, 15 verses of that chapter, it says, Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, all kinds of things. Blessed is your storehouse and you just, it's promises of health, of well-being, um, blessings and victory. There, it's a very awesome chapter looking at the blessings that came on the people of God. But it was hard for Abraham to believe God wanted to bless him so much. In Genesis 15, we find that dialogue between God and Abraham. 
In Genesis 15, 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Wow. I'd like that God to say that to me, wouldn't you? Yeah. And then, if you skip down in that chapter, in chapter 7, I mean, verse 7, it says, <clears throat> Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And then, verse 8, Abraham says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How do I know that you want to give me all these blessings? How do I know you're going to do what you said? How do I know that what you said is true? I mean, this is a God that really hadn't, it had been in Genesis and he'd been in with Noah and you know, a few times here and there. But he wasn't a part of Abraham's life. And then he came to him in Ur of the Chaldees and called him out. And, and you read in chapters 12 and 13, 14, 15, how God is building a relationship with Abraham. And in 15, he says, I'm your exceedingly great reward, Abraham. And Abraham says, how do I know that you're going to give me this land? How do I know that? And so in verse 9, it says, So the Lord said to him, Bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so Abraham brought them to him. He cut them in two. He cut them down the middle. He placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And then in verse 17, it says, And it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark. And behold, there, was a, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch. And it passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given the land from the river, great river, from the great river, I'm going to say that yet, from the great river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So in Abraham's day, bud covenant signified something absolute, something unbreakable in their agreement. Nothing short of a blood agreement, nothing short would convince Abraham of God's desire to bless him. So by cutting the covenant with Abraham, by, by, by this act, God communicated to him his unfailing love on a level that Abraham could understand. God was establishing a relationship with him that could not be broken on the penalty of death. But kind of the background maybe a little bit to that covenant process in Abraham's day. Two families wanted to make a covenant together. Lots of tribes and you know, and um, peoples, and so two families would say, "Well, let's make a covenant together, because we're weak in one place and you're strong, and we're strong and you're weak, and together we can both be strong. We can protect each other." And so they make a covenant together. They would give everything they had to the other tribe, and that tribe would give everything they had to this one. I mean, it's kind of symbolic, but. That was the thing. They were no longer two tribes, but they were one. Families bound themselves together in these kind of blood agreements to protect themselves, to fill in the gaps, 
to cover their weaknesses and their needs. And so they would draw up terms of agreement, and they would negotiate, and they would talk about them until they were mutually agreeable to them. And then they chose representatives and placed uh, and a place to cut the covenant. As they prepared that for that solemn assembly, at least three large animals were brought in, and they were sacrificed, and their carcasses were split down the middle at the backbone, and the halves were placed on the ground opposite each other. And the result, the, the result of that was a trail of blood in between them. The path was called in, the, in their covenants the way of blood. And so when the covenant ceremony began, the two representatives exchanged their coats. And that signified the mutual exchange of their authority. Next, the covenant, and, and the next, <clears throat> by that action, they were saying, all that I have is yours, and all that I am is yours. And next, the covenant representatives would exchange their weapons, whatever kind of weapons they had, and through that they were saying, my strength is yours. Your enemies are now my enemies. And then their, after their coats and weapons were exchanged, they would walk through the path of blood in between the sacrifice. Twice they walked that way, and stopping in the center, they pronounced their pledges of loyalty, making promises to each other that could never be broken. And that was the blessing of the covenant. But there was also a curse pronounced. And the curse was the penalty for breaking the covenant. If you break this covenant, you're dead. You don't want to break it. And they swore that before their God. And they made, they made him a third party to the covenant they were making. And then came the cut of the covenant. They, the, the, the representatives would cut their wrists and they would put them together to mingle their blood. It's a sign that they had become one. And then they had a covenant meal. They ate bread and wine together, signifying their flesh and signifying their blood, that they were one now. And so these kinds of blood agreements, these covenants, they were very serious things in Abraham's day. And we have similar things in contracts and covenants today. But in that day, they were very serious and they had a specific order. When God chose to make a covenant with Abraham, remember we read in the passage in Genesis, he did that very thing that this covenant described. They took three large animals, they cut them in half, they laid them on the sides, each side of the path. God did that because he wanted to do something in Abraham's frame of reference that Abraham would understand. He wanted... Abraham to be convinced that his promises were true. He wanted Abraham to understand that the great El Shaddai, the God of the universe, desired an unbreakable relationship with him and with his children. He wanted him to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loved him, that he would care for him, that he would protect him. Because, not because he had to. He entered in that covenant freely. God could have just walked away from Abraham. But he didn't. He said, I want to make a covenant with you that is unbreakable. And so in that vision, you see two parties. You notice that Abraham wasn't one of those parties. 
So I wondered about that. I'll come back to that. God proved in making that covenant with Abraham that he would exchange his strength and his weapons and his authority for Abraham's. He proved that he wanted to bless man for a thousand generations. That's a long time, by the way. And so, Abraham, it says in those two verses, one in Genesis and one in Romans, that Abraham was fully convinced. Abraham got the message. In 15, 6, it says, and the Lord, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, he being fully convinced that he, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. God meant business. And Abraham became fully persuaded that God wanted to perform what he had promised. And that his life would never be the same. Even the very name Abram, Abram was changed to Abraham. Meaning, you're the father of many nations. And eventually, Isaac, the son of the promise, came. It was born to Abraham and his wife Sarah. When years later, after Isaac's birth, and they're just growing up and doing things families do, God came and said, I have a chore for you. And Abraham said, what? And Abraham, and God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain. How could he do that after promising Abraham that he would bless, that he would become the father of many nations through Isaac? You might expect Abraham to be distraught over such a request. We could expect him to be wringing his hands, pacing the floor all night, wondering about what's going on, grief and anguish filling his heart. But we're not as covenant-minded as Abraham was. Abraham was confident in the covenant that God had made. He went to sleep that night, he rose in the morning, and they got ready to go. Took Isaac up to the mountain for sacrifice to sacrifice him. He turned back to his servant when they left, and he said, "Wait here. The boy and I will be back." You wonder. Hebrews eleven seventeen says this: By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and when and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Of whom it was said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Verse 19 says, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. Hebrews says that Abraham, by faith, believed God, that he had already received Isaac back from the dead. God promised that Isaac would make him the father of many nations. And he knew God could not possibly break that promise. Wow. Even though he'd never seen, he'd never heard of such a thing, Abraham reasoned that God would just raise Isaac up from the dead if he had to. God would fulfill the promise he made. He knew that God would do whatever it took to keep that covenant. 
Think about this now. This is a really a critical moment in the sermon. Abraham laid his son down on the, on the altar for sacrifice. He opened the way for God, his covenant partner, to do the same thing with his only son, Jesus, on the cross years later. But there's an important point to realize. Jesus didn't just appear on the scene later on. He'd been involved in the covenant from the very beginning. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, look at this verse. While God was binding himself to Abraham, this is not the verse yet, while God was binding himself to Abraham in covenant agreement, he was also making a covenant with Jesus in heaven. Galatians 3.16 says, Now Abraham, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Read that verse, the beginning. To Abraham and to his seed. Who are his seed? He did not say, and to seeds, like all of us, or all of Israel, but to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Abraham was the earthly representative, and Jesus was the heavenly representative. The covenant was not just between God and Abraham, but between God the Father and God the Son. Abraham looked at the promise of what God was going to do for him in inheritance and father of many nations, land and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus looked at something better. A better covenant. A better agreement. The agreement that God made with Jesus was better than God made with Abraham. By making a covenant with Jesus... He was making a covenant with someone he knew would never break it. And thereby he removed the need for a curse. So how does it apply to you and me? Well, look at verse 29 in Galatians 3. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. That brings you and me into the, in the equation. I'm Abraham's seed. And so I'm an heir of Abraham and all that God promised him and even more and all that God promised him through Jesus. Romans eight seventeen says, we are joint heirs with Jesus. If children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The new covenant is better than the old one. You know that? If you read Deuteronomy 28, I'm not going to read it, but if you do, you'll find the blessings of God on people who keep the covenant. The first 15 verses, amazing things. They're wonderful promises. It's hard to imagine anything better. But if you keep reading in that chapter, starting with verse 16, all the way to 68, you'll find it's full of curses. All kinds of icky things you don't want to have happen. They are the things that fall on you if you break the curse, if you break the agreement. But that's where our covenants differ. Although we have been guilty, maybe, of breaking the terms of the covenant, 
Jesus never did. From the time he was born until he died in Calvary, he never broke the terms of the agreement. He kept the covenant. And when he went to the cross, he bore the curse. He paid the penalty for you and me. So that I wouldn't have to bear it. So that I wouldn't have to go through it. In verse 13 and 14 of Galatians 3 it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles in Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Wow. Every demonic and diabolical thing that the enemy has planned, that, that he has ever thought about doing to you, was placed on Jesus at the cross. He bore the whole penalty for your sin. He bore all of your sicknesses. He carried all of your diseases. He paid the price. His blood paid the entire price. Paid the whole price. Look at these verses in Colossians. In the Living um, Passion Translation. Just powerful verses. Verse 13. He has rescued us partially. He rescued you partially? Any one of you? No, he rescued us completely. He rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule of darkness. And he has translated us. He placed us in the kingdom of his beloved son. For in the son, all of our sins are canceled. And we have the release of redemption through his very blood. And then in verse 20, and by the blood of his cross, everything in heaven and earth is brought back to himself, back to its original intent, restored to innocence again. He totally stripped the devil of all of his power. He bore the curse so that you could receive the blessing of Abraham through faith in Christ. He became the sacrificial lamb and he established your covenant with God through his own shed blood. And one more passage in Colossians chapter 2. He canceled every he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. Did you know that you had an arrest warrant indicting you for sin? You did. But he canceled it. He declared you innocent. It says, he erased it all. Our sins, our stained soil, he deleted it all. And they cannot be retrieved. Wow. Everything that we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed there permanently as a public display of cancellation. Everything has been canceled. And Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness. 
stripping away from them every weapon and all of their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Wow. The book of Hebrews says there's a new and living way we have to approach God. Remember the way of the blood? Well, the blood of Jesus made a way for us to have a covenant relationship with the Father that is unbreakable. Wow. Jesus became our blood sacrifice. But not only is he our blood sacrifice, he is our representative. He is the one mediator between God and man. In 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, these things are right to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He not only sees to our forgiveness, when we confess our sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And he wasn't just the blood sacrifice and the representative, but he was the covenant meal as well. He said in John 6.51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give him is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. When you understand covenant terminology and you understand what's going on in the covenant, you can see it woven all the way through the New Testament, all the way through the scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against all the wiles of the devil. And then 13 through 17, he lists all the armor of God that we have. Jesus exchanged his weapons and his armor with you. He made you strong in the power of his might. Exchanged your weakness for his strength. He has given you everything you need because of the covenant relationship that we have with him. He took your sin and and he gave you his robe of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He has become so totally one with us, so totally one with you that he is giving you his authority to use his name. He's given you power. In Mark 16, 17 and 18, it says, And these signs shall follow them who believe. In that one little phrase there, in my name. In my name. That means you have the authority to use his name. For what? Well, it says, In my name they will cast out devils. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents if any drink any deadly thing and shall not harm them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they will recover. These are the things he's given us. And do you know the devil has no right to interfere in your life? He has no right. Jesus stripped him of all of his power and all of his authority. The new covenant does not depend. Let me say that again. The new covenant does not depend on your ability to keep it. It depends on Jesus' ability to keep it. It rests solely in his hands. 
Just like Abraham, just like David, you have a covenant with Almighty God. And just like Abraham, you can become fully persuaded that God is able, that God has promised, that God will do it, that God will be there. That what he has promised to you, he is also able to perform. Think about those verses in Romans we read already. Chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And just like David, you can stand on the covenant and whip any uncircumcised circumstance, Philistine, that stands in your way. No matter how big it looks, you can be victorious in him. And your covenant is even way better than theirs because it doesn't carry the curse anymore. You can take Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 16 through 68, and just draw an X and says, this doesn't apply to me. Jesus bore this for me. Christ freed me from it. Every diabolical thing that the enemy has planned to destroy you, these are the things God has released you from. He has healed you from. He has delivered you from. So rejoice in your deliverance. Jesus paid the full price. He bore the curse for you. He became the covenant sacrifice for you. He poured out his own precious blood for you. You ought to be standing up and shouting, glory to God. Amen. Amen. Jesus paid it all. His blood was sufficient. And we're going to celebrate at the table this morning. And when you do, think about the blood of Jesus and how powerful it is. The covenant that God made with you is unbreakable. Unbreakable. doesn't depend on me. It depends on him and the power of his blood. Could have the elders come forward.